It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. On this week's episode, we discuss the condition of the UK's care homes and how to be a good opposition. And Sarah Manavis joins us to discuss the rise of eco-fascism. So this week we had a rare occasion in which Prime Minister's questions actually engendered a news story with legs in that a question on the government's advice over care homes that Keir Starmer asked to Boris Johnson during PMQs generated a news story for the rest of the day and a lot of controversy around what the government's policy was on care homes in March. Stephen and Anoush, I mean, I suppose there are different angles there. Firstly, I know, Anoush, that you've been reporting on care homes for quite some time. Is it right to think that this may be the biggest scandal of the government's handling of coronavirus to date? I really think that it could be um, because if you look back not that many weeks ago when we did our investigation into what was going on in care homes there were still people from hospitals being discharged into care homes either having not been tested for coronavirus or having been tested for coronavirus and testing positive but with the assumption that care homes would be able to isolate them. You can be isolated in hospital successfully by by a process called barrier nursing. And technically, you should be able to do it in care homes too. But of course, as we know only too well, that protective equipment that's required for the staff there has not been available. And in many cases, anecdotally, is still not available. So that was you know quite a while ago that we wrote that story. And what's given it a lot of salience this week is that the Telegraph actually re- reported a cardiologist who who explained what what had been going on that people were being discharged from hospitals into into care homes with COVID nineteen and that's how it started spreading in care homes, which is you know something that care workers have known for a very long time and that we reported in our piece a long time ago. But because it's the Daily Telegraph and because it's seen as the um, the paper that usually champions Boris Johnson. It was ideal ammunition for Keir Starmer to bring up at Prime Minister's questions on on Wednesday. And as you say, it created headlines because the controversy centred around government advice on the issue, which suggested that there was a very low chance, this was up until I think March 12th, suggested there was a very low chance of coronavirus spreading in care homes. And that's also something that our uh, former colleague George Grills picked up on and, and we reported as well. 
But of course, Keir Starmer and the Daily Telegraph has given this this story legs and and also as our death toll has exceeded that of other European countries, it's brought to light that we have made or the government has made some big mistakes or at least has has delayed its response in a very damaging way in some areas. And this looks like it's definitely one of them. Then, of course, the the reason it generated headlines was because Keir Starmer put that government advice or it was the, the official Public Health England guidance and the only available or the only official advice on how care homes should be handling the crisis that was published at that time. He put it to Boris Johnson and Boris Johnson said it wasn't true. Then Labour wrote a letter to Downing Street asking Boris Johnson to return to the Commons to correct the record and then they said that he had quoted the guidance without the full context but actually the full context just conceded the point that for at at least a week when there was known community transmission in the UK of coronavirus it was still the policy for care homes that there was no community transmission therefore care homes would be fine. It's an interesting example, as well as the overall scandal of the principle that PMQs is very rarely lost in the chamber, in the, ultimately, the reason why Keir Starmer has had successful PMQs with this approach, this week in, yeah, kind of, as Alva says, a very rare PMQs to actually generate a news story, and against Dominic Raab, is the government doesn't have a good answer on it, and up until the point they decide to go, we made these mistakes for this reason, and essentially tries to do an apology and a, res- and a reset, it's difficult to see how that won't be a semi-recurrent issue. The other thing that I think it is an interesting example of is that Boris Johnson not being on top of the brief. Because obviously this has been, a, this has been I think it's fair to say, a very good week for Keir Starmer overall. What I thought was interesting in the statement on the lockdown regulations is one of the questions he was asked, which he couldn't answer, was why are the four nations not leaving together? There's a really perfectly sensible and sound justification for that on page 22 of our plan to rebuild the government's exit strategy, which quite rightly says, well, look, if you have different rates of infection in Cornwall and Newcastle, it doesn't actually make sense for you know, the same health invention is not necessarily going to be that helpful here. A really simple answer that he really ought to have just had at his fingertips. So I think this might actually also be one of the five years when the principle in PMQs is mostly lost outside of the chamber doesn't really apply simply because he yeah, just I, I mean, isn't I, on top of it. I think that's a really good point because while I think Keir Starmer has been giving very impressive media performances and, you know, the whole of the front bench have, have been on top of, you know, their policy briefs and, and are all being quite forensic in their, in their scrutiny of the government. I found the celebration of Keir Starmer's sort of hammering Boris Johnson on the care homes issue this week a little bit uncomfortable because this has been going on since March, since the rush to empty hospital beds right at the start of this crisis, long before the official lockdown. Everyone's known that it's been the way that people have been discharged from hospitals into nursing homes and residential homes has been dangerous because the protective equipment hasn't been available and the testing wasn't there. We've known this from 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 the very beginning. And You know, while there were weeks where Labour were really focusing on publishing the lockdown easing plan, which obviously was very prescient and has become an increasingly pressing issue and something that's got the Conservative government hot under the collar, this stuff was happening. So if you want to be a genuinely constructive opposition and make sure that, you know, what we were talking about 
if you're if you're running the sort of inquiry while the crisis is going that it's constructive and that you're that you're trying to make sure that policies change why weren't they scrutinizing this stuff before you know Keir, Keir Starmer came into leadership of the Labour Party at the beginning of of April we wrote our piece about how this discharging scandal was happening on the 24th of April so we you know we were long behind it as well but you know that that just shows that it was it was going on for for a very long time before it's become this kind of gotcha moment in the chamber and i find that a little bit distasteful because it's something it's something that you know they could have pinned onto the government earlier i know that boris johnson wasn't there in person for quite a long time but i still think it's it was it was the more pressing issue earlier on i think that's such a good point anush and very well made because i think there's still a lot of this crisis yet to come, but I do think that in an inquiry, the the hospital discharge policy will be maybe the big thing. I mean, so for context, like the 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 so-called discharge to assess model is this award-winning model in the NHS, which sort of lays out a pathway in order to free up hospital beds, basically, and to allow people to receive care from home after hospital as as easily as possible or to move people into care homes and they ramped that up as part of the pandemic response with the aim of freeing up hospital beds which is really really important and my understanding would be that the people involved in that ramped up that policy on the understanding that people in care homes would have adequate testing and adequate PPE but there was obviously I'm like a fatal error that the people implementing the policy didn't realize that and it what they didn't come up with a new policy based around the limited PPE and testing supplying care homes and it may be like the largest cause of I mean we don't know yet but it may be the largest cause of fatalities in this crisis and I agree that I think it was on Keir Starmer's second day in the job or the Monday morning after he was elected that it was you know his big sensible intervention to to ask the government to publish him its exit strategy and it seemed like a way of sort of of being a constructive opposition and you know asking some difficult questions and pushing the government but ultimately with the aim of working together and I'm sure it would have been very hard within the Labour Party to identify early on that the problem was in care homes and what that problem was but if they could have done that differently and looked into it and decided that that was what they were going to push the government on at that stage, it could have made a real difference, unlike pushing on the exit strategy, which didn't achieve very much. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. So the thing is, I'm not sure that I do think that pushing on the exit strategy didn't achieve very much, right? How slash whether we do try and exit from this is going to be a kind of like Mm. generation and society defining event. That if it's got wrong, will have an even greater death toll than the care homes policy. But I guess the problem with all of this, just thinking of like another kind of intra-labour row about, you know, their set of asks for the government on housing policy, is that whenever people talk about being a good opposition, right, well, there's two metrics for that. And often when people want the opposition to do something, they pretend that there's only one, right? Because there's the improving the government day-to-day sort of important function of opposition. And there's the replacing the government, which is the ultimate aim of the leader of the opposition. And, yeah, obviously Brexit being the most recent example and arguably the, the current example as well, right? It would in many ways be 
deeply insane to decide the the year that we were going to reimagine our food and supply chain relations yeah relations will be 2021 a year when we and many other countries have probably still not exited from the coronavirus the fight against coronavirus so on one conception of opposition Keir Starmer saying I have no intention of pressing for that if they think they can get a deal in the year's time good luck to them is terrible opposition but equally the position that it is perfect it is not the Labour Party's job to end itself electorally in order to make the Conservative government the, the best government it can be is also perfectly sound. And I think in some ways this week we've kind of seen a definitive choice of one or the other. But I think the thing that has been slightly frustrating about covering this Labour Party over the last fortnight is the way that it's not even so much I think it acts as a mop bailey. Yeah, the kind of like, oh, we need to improve them. Oh, no, we need to replace them. It's the way that it's not entirely clear to me that as a front bench, they have fully decided which one of those they want to be yet. That's a really good point. Yeah, I think that's that's so right, because I, I was looking at it completely from the perspective of surely you just want to make sure that fewer people die in this period, which, you know, I suppose would be linked more to the trying to be a constructive opposition and pointing out when the government have made mistakes as soon as possible. And, you know, not waiting to land that politically salient blow as well as, you know, as that being the priority, if you see what I mean. But yes, I I, I do agree with you. The fact that he's anticipating what the dividing lines are going to be before they sort of become the, the big issue suggests to, to, to people. And it's, he's actually gone up in the public estimation, hasn't he, recently in the polling, suggests to people that he is on top of the issues. Just on this particular issue, I felt a little bit uncomfortable because... It is definitely too little too late to be pointing out what's been going on since way before coronavirus was widespread. To subscribe to The New Statesman for a digital or print subscription or both, go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe. You can get 12 weeks for £12. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So now's the time for a section we usually like to call You Ask Us, but it's We Ask Sarah. Sarah Monavis, our um, digital culture writer, wrote a very interesting piece this week about the rise of eco-fascism. Now, this is something you've written about before, isn't it, Sarah? But it's come up during coronavirus because of the sort of apparently innocent narrative about how the planet is recovering while all of the nation is under lockdown. Yeah, so it's one of these weird things where I originally wrote about ecofascism in 2018, and it was incredibly niche at the time. It was one of these things where, like, 
you know, it was a couple of people, well, not a couple, but there was a group of people mostly living on 4chan and certain parts of Reddit, who essentially at the time were just vegan ethno-nationalists, I guess is like the simplest way to put it. So people who like were really big, like environmentalists in the sort of traditional way you would expect, you know, like no single use plastic. Yeah, again, like veganism, that kind of thing, like low carbon emissions, and were activists, but also sort of had this weird element in which they believed that the only way to save the planet was for people to go back to like their original and by original, they don't mean where you were born, they mean racially your original homeland. And through that, somehow the planet would be saved because people would just be staying where they these eco-fascists thought that they were from. That was what it was in 2018. It sort of morphed over time. The Christchurch shooter in 2019 cited eco-fascism in his manifesto he uploaded before the shooting. And now we have this new iteration, which is like a more watered down thing, which is essentially where you believe that human life is worth sacrificing for the sake of the environment. And that's kind of where we are now. So you have this weird uprising or sort of re-emergence of eco-fascism, where people believe that the effects of coronavirus, i.e. the fact that people are stuck inside, they can't be traveling on planes, they can't be going out, you know, buying lots of things, consuming lots of things that do ultimately hurt the planet, but that that sort of really, really scary and very deadly impact is worth it for those, I guess you could call them environmental silver linings. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's all these sort of mawkish videos and memes and clips of animals and and other things like wandering around cities and this suggestion that like you know we've we've saved the planet with this virus some of them are just more fun and seem more innocent than others but they all make me feel slightly uncomfortable and I think it is because of that sort of implied sacrifice but where does the sort of discrimination and racism come into this new sort of form of eco-fascism? It's also worth saying that a lot of those images that you're seeing of animals returning to their natural habitats in cities are not real images. Like, for example, one of the biggest ones was like dolphins returning to Venice, the Venice canals. And most of those images, or if not all of those images, were just photoshopped images. Yes. Yeah, so the racist element is essentially that when you look at coronavirus and its impact, not necessarily for like a biological reason, but because of like socioeconomic reasons, Black and minority ethnic and Asian people are the people that are being disproportionately affected when it comes to the death toll. So it's here in the care system, when you look at doctors, nurses, Anoush wrote this great piece that sort of cited this, along with many other interesting things, that is disproportionately affecting BAME, doctors, nurses, etc. And then even if you look in places like the US, it doesn't even go just to the care system, it goes way beyond that. That if you are Black, if you are Asian, minority ethnic, you are more likely to die from this virus, at least statistically in the US. So when we sort of celebrate these things, which I'm not saying that every celebration means that you're like some raging eco-fascist, there is a cost. And trying to pretend that that cost doesn't exist or that there's some sort of positive side to that cost, it isn't just the fact that people are dying, but this is disproportionately affecting people that are not white. And so that is where sort of eco-fascism gets to relay its ground a bit, where it can kind of not necessarily saying people need to go back to where they came from, but it's still valuing white life above all else alongside valuing the planet. So what's the kind of eco-fascist radicalization journey? So is it that you basically have traditional fascists who are convinced by the science for climate change? Or is it that you have people who are 
seriously green who then go a bit fash? I think it's probably more of the latter. I think it's similar with pretty much any type of radicalization. This is also sort of with the foundational principle that like systemic racism exists and people can be predisposed to that anyways. But a lot of the time with online radicalization, people don't come at it through being like, I want to be a bigot and I'm bigoted and I need a home for that. A lot of it comes through a mutual shared interest in something else or sort of like a common ground. Like when you look at incels, so involuntary celibates, the way that those kind of guys who, you know, are middle-aged or older virgins become radicalized into being like an incel misogynist is because, you know, they're all sort of harboring together saying, oh, we're all middle-aged virgins, that sucks. Oh, maybe women are the problem. And so similarly with ecofascism, it's a lot of people who think like, oh my God, we must do something to save the planet. And you suddenly have this weird situation, which is like so unbelievably strange and unpredictable. And you go, oh, there's a solution for this. And like, maybe actually I can rationalize in my head that it's okay that people are dying because people were going to die if the planet was going to die. And so you can get radicalized in that way. And again, there is that racial element always in play because of the way that these deaths are working and the way that the statistics are for coronavirus deaths. So yeah, I think it's more of that journey. Obviously, there are plenty of people who are just like violently racist, who are just looking for any new shade of racism to sort of push out into the world. And I think a lot of the time, the eco-fascists that you'll have seen in the first place or people that are maybe trying to radicalize people into becoming eco-fascists now will already just be predisposed to racism, et cetera, et cetera. And so they're just trying to trick other people into believing that. But I think like the average person who maybe goes from posting the planet is healing on Facebook to becoming like a full-on fascist, that's more their journey, is that they come into it thinking, oh, maybe this isn't all so bad. And then suddenly they think, oh, actually, this is okay to advocate for. And Sarah, what are the main ways that eco-fascists organize? I know you mentioned 4chan and Reddit and ethno-nationalists sort of beginning there in 2018. Is that still mainly the way this manifests? Eco-fascism is a really interesting one because I think a lot of people probably are ultimately eco-fascists without realizing that they're eco-fascists because it is relatively (laughs) new, you know, in the grand scheme of fascisms and their different strains, like this is one that is like relatively new versus ones that were sort of around maybe 2012 to 2016 that now have had time to morph and kind of get faces and icons. Whereas I think eco-fascism is a little bit more, this is a weird thing to say, grassroots at the moment. And so, yeah, I think it's actually a lot of just people in the green movement, people I've spoken to that are kind of in the climate change environment that know about eco-fascism say that you can sort of spot an eco-fascist just through, you know, Facebook groups and things like that purely based around, you know, green issues in general. But I think in terms of the people that are actually saying like, let's radicalize more people or get more people on board with this movement that we have, you can find them on Twitter, you can find them on Reddit, you can find them on 4chan. And they do tend to organize online because it's not a geographically based thing. It's mostly Europe, the US, Canada but they're pretty much everywhere and most of it is still online, I guess you could say, organization. In terms of the kind of the, the, the US kind of chapter of it, so what is the relation that these people have with like the rest of the far right? Because obviously, particularly in the States, that is also where there is an awful lot of climate change denial. So like, how do, how do like the rest of the online fascists feel about the eco-fascists? Well, so going back to what I said about the Christchurch shooter is 
again, these are things that like I didn't really ever expect myself to be talking about or saying. The eco-fascists are sort of like, I would say, kind of the often mocked strain of fascism amongst the rest of the fascists. When the Christchurch shooter said he was an eco-fascist in his manifesto that he uploaded online before committing those shootings, he said he was an eco-fascist, but people are pretty sure that that was like an ironic reading. Because for the most part, eco-fascists get made fun of because they're sort of soft and all of this is motivated by like their love of the planet. And also a lot of what they're interested in, at least like the really hardcore ones or like the ones I spoke to in 2018, they're very interested in like Norse mythology and Thor. And it's kind of like traditionally nerdy stuff. Whereas like a lot of the alt-right is very like macho, even though they're not necessarily like the most traditional macho guys if you were to come across them. So I think that in the ecosystem of fascists, the eco-fascists are kind of like this sort of like weird kind of mocked, almost like social pariah of that realm. However, the way I came across eco-fascism in the first place was because I was investigating people who were whitewashing architectural history on um, Twitter and Reddit. And there is sort of this increasingly growing, very traditional European obsessed, white European obsessed group of what, yeah, you could call the alt-right. And their overlap in the US, I don't think is as strong as it potentially is here in the UK or in Europe generally. However, they do definitely exist. But I think in like the US space, they are kind of seen as like the dorky nerdy ones, which again, is such a weird thing to say out loud. But yeah, that is kind of how they're viewed. So really, actually, in many ways, eco-fascists would be, if there was a fascist equivalent of the New Statesman podcast, they would broadly be our Venn diagram. God, that's a, that is an <laughs> insane thought, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a really apt way to put it for these listeners. I'm sure that will make a lot of sense to everyone. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because you usually associate environmentalism and even extreme environmentalism with the left. And I know that you've written about Extinction Rebellion in your piece and how they had a problem with sort of that meme or that tweet. I can't remember what it, in what form it was that went around that was saying Corona is the cure, humans are the disease. And um, it was kind of being associated with an account that was pretending to be part of Extinction Rebellion. But the genuine group has also had a bit of a problem with its whiteness. And, you know, I've spoken to people who are some of the organisers who, who are aware that, that that's one of their problems, that they they are exclusive in terms of race and class, even if it's not intentional. So it's interesting how all of these different things cross over, you know, in a more in a more shallow sense, in mainstream sort of eco-activism. Yeah, totally. And I do think you do see this sort of increasingly, especially in the UK, like increasingly middle and almost like upper class versions. I mean, I guess like fascism always has had that. But like in that kind of what you would see as like a left wing interest or activism, you see these sort of like middle class, really upper class fascist versions of it. And that is part of the thing with with eco-fascists. A lot of the time they are like quite wealthy like you know you'll look at their instagrams or their twitter and it's like they have quite like flashy clothes or nice houses and in many ways can like afford a lifestyle which a lot of the time to be like completely eco-friendly is like completely eco-friendly is expensive and so yeah i do think you get to see this thing where these traditionally left or considered to be a part of the left things do have these fash tendencies and yeah, and it's a lot more common than you think. And I do think it permeates a lot of different things. Like again, like architecture is another thing. And unfortunately, something like coronavirus will just be like a magnifying glass to a much, much wider audience. And part of it is that 
even if you don't necessarily believe in ecofascism and you're not necessarily like, I love the planet and like, I think it's okay for people to die and particularly for anybody who's not white to die in order for the planet to be quote unquote saved. A lot of the people that like operate in these online spaces, like do enjoy just doing things as a joke. And so with those Extinction Rebellion stickers, like I would not be surprised if that was done as a joke, like not by people who necessarily want to discredit Extinction Rebellion or people that necessarily like do believe that like coronavirus is the cure and we are the virus. But yeah, it's just like, it's funny. It's going to be a viral story. You're going to be able to say to your friends, like, look, we got major organizations to cover that. And that's kind of the end game. So yeah, I think like this stuff is just going to be bigger and bigger. And we're only two months in with many months more to go. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, our Britain editor, Anoush Shekelian, our political correspondent, Alva Ray, and our digital culture writer, Sarah Menavis. Patrick will be back from his book writing holiday. And if you're enjoying the New Statesman podcast, do leave a favourable review on iTunes. And please, if you can, do subscribe to the New Statesman. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.